Well, good morning, Desert Springs. Uh, my name is Justin Beach. I'm a pastor at, I'm assistant pastor at uh, church in Peoria. It's a sister church of this. And it is, why well, I'm not blanking on the name, but I am. It's Fellowship of Grace Church. Uh, I'm there only for the past six months. Uh, before that, I served a church in Chicago called Ethos. I was assistant pastor there. Hello. Was it Anna? You're, you're waving to me again, so hello. <laughs> um, and uh, why am I here uh, in Arizona now? Why did we move, uh, besides the obvious reason of wanting to leave uh, negative degree temperatures when we left the Midwest to 70 degrees when we came to the valley, uh, I received a call to church plant in Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix is one of the, actually one of the least church cities of the country, despite a reputation where you might not think that. It's also the fifth largest city uh, as, as for population in the whole country. And so there's just, there's a huge need for churches in Phoenix. And so we received that call, we accepted that call, and we relo- relocated in a matter of from receiving the call to leaving in about a month and a half. So that was a crazy trip. But we're glad to be here. Uh, and the area that we're going to be planting is north central Phoenix. So it'll be north of downtown, but right in Phoenix itself. So the reason I mention that is if you have any family, any connections, anyone that you might know, um, Christian or not, I would love to meet them. I'd love to sit down with them. I'd love to invite them over to our home. Uh, so feel free uh, as you think about that. You can pass that along or maybe even ask uh, uh, Amy Steele for my email address if you want to send that info along. But if you would, uh, turn with me to Second Peter 1, 1 through 11. And we will read from God's Word there. Second Peter is uh, the second, it's called 2 Peter because it's the second letter of the Apostle Peter to the churches in Asia Minor. And he writes, the main theme of this book is that the grace of God in Christ would truly transform and empower Christians to live righteously and in the face of opposition. And so let's read the first, I will read the first uh, 11 verses here. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent 
to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the reading of the word of our Lord. Let us come together and pray. Lord and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune God, we pray to you now. We cry out to you now from here in Tucson, Arizona. Lord, as those gathered, as saints gathered with a faith of equal standing, Lord, with the Apostle Peter, we cry out to you that you would send your Spirit now to illuminate our hearts, to make this the words that were written on this text, on, on this page, Lord, that there would not just be words, but that they would be words of power, that they would be words of wisdom, words of life. Lord, open our hearts to understand these words. Open our ears, our minds, and our eyes to see and hear and know. And Lord, I pray that you would also be with me, the one you've asked to explain, to preach. And it's in Jesus' name that we call, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you uh, two pictures of how someone might describe their faith. As they're living the Christian life, Peter's talking to, uh, he's, he's writing here to believers who've been in the church for a good length of time, maybe a decade, maybe more. So they've got some Christianity under their belt, and he writes this to them as a reminder. And so I want to give you two pictures here. How do you think the, the people he's writing to uh, would be describing their faith back to him, uh, maybe before he wrote and then after he wrote? The first picture is this. I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, but they have a train system there called the L. And when I went there for uh, college, I would ride the red line, which would go from the north side of the city to the south side of the city. And a big, a big over an hour long trip. And I'd get on at Howard. And I would sit on that train until I got to Roosevelt, which was right down in the loop. And I remember, I can, I've ran it so many times, I know how that train goes. It would say, this is Roosevelt. Doors open on the left at Roosevelt. Chinatown is next. Doors open on the right at Chinatown. <laughs> you are on a red line train to 95th. And it's like, that's, the, that's what I remember about the train ride. You get on. How would you, would you describe your faith like that? You get on at justification, that God justifies you, and then you're on that train, and when it departs and it says, congratulations, you're now in heaven, you can get off. Is that how we would describe our faith? Or would it be like this? Just last Monday, I got back from Estes Park, Colorado, with a group of youth, taking them to a Reformed Youth Mission, a PCA camp there. Over 800 kids. It was wonderful. But one day, they, they, well, each day they did all these hikes. And this was great. And I loved hikes, but I don't like hiking in groups of 50 people. And so I went on my own. I just let all the teens go up and I came after. But this is the hike. You could see it from where we live, where, where, where we were lodging. And it was uh, called Eagle Cliff, just straight out. And they said, we're going to climb that. It's a mile hike up. And you're going to go 1,000 feet up in a mile. All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm going, I'm scrambling myself up. 
I'm pulling on boulders to get myself up. I can't just go on my feet. I've had to stop probably five different times and go to my backpack for a, a power bar, for water, and just to like get my breathing back in order. Would you describe your faith like that? Is that a picture of the Christian life? You see, I ask that because Peter's writing, I think, to a group of Christians who, who right, they knew the basics of faith, but then what the mode of life that they had gotten into was vastly different from what they were called to. And so he, he writes these words and tells them. What's interesting is he points them, there's a word that repeats all over, knowledge, the knowledge of God. You see, the true knowledge of God is one of the most untapped powers in the Christian life. A true knowledge of God, I think, is something that we put to the back burner in our day-to-day Christian life. The true knowledge of God, though, as it says here, is the thing that gives us power that he describes as divine power, as getting a divine nature. I want to look at this. What is the knowledge of God? What does it give us? I want to look at it in three points. I want to look at its provision, the provision of the knowledge of God. I want to look at the progression of the knowledge of God. And then I'm going to look at the power of the knowledge of God. So First Peter, I want to reread verses 3 to 5. Because if you were talking to a non-Christian, maybe you're working with a non-Christian, and he's like, well, what does it matter that you know God? What does it give you? Isn't it just mean you, you give money at church and you, they take away your Sunday morning? If that's a perspective of our neighbors, how would you respond to them with saying, no, the knowledge of God has something vastly different about my life? Verses 3 to 5 is somewhere we can turn. Let's read that again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. We have so much packed there. Let's let's look at those things in reverse order. He ends with sinful desire. That we've been delivered from sinful desire and the corruption that happens there. What is sinful desire? Have you ever driven down the road and all of a sudden someone cuts you off? Someone's driving and they have no clue where they're going. Someone's driving and uh, they stop. They don't use their blinker. Someone cuts out in front of you. Or someone you just see, this might be the first time of them on the road. And when you see this, and this happens in front of you, all of a sudden you blurt out, you, whatever your word is, your choice word, that you keep to yourself because it's you and your car by yourself. That's sinful desire. Or maybe when a parent blows up at their children for spilling something, that's sinful desire. Or when a husband and wife, they see all the mannerisms that are, are in the household when you share and you live life together and you keep silent about it. But at some point you see it and then you say, why do you always do that sinful desire? When police officers or any politician or someone in power um, starts to abuse their authority, even when an older brother or sister is in charge for a day and they start to make all kinds of rules. 
sinful desire. When racial slurs fly out of your mouth, that's sinful desire. I could go on and on. But where does all this sinful desire lead? It leads to the corruption of the world. That the world has been given to futility. What does that mean? That every society, every family, everything we do, everything we build as a group of people, as Americans, as Arizonians, as, are you called Tucsonians? I don't know what it is. People who live in Tucson, everything we build and put our effort to is ultimately going to crumble. It's going to fade. We're going to see the stress fractures appear. Things aren't going to work. And in the end, it's going to face judgment. And God's going to judge it. He's going to come and expose it for what it is. You see, the knowledge, the true knowledge of God has not only delivered you from the being brought along with the world going to corruption, it's also delivered you from being controlled by the sinful desire that leads to that corruption. It means you have a deliverance from acting out those base instincts that come just as, right, we say second nature, but first nature. What else? So we have this escape from corruption. Well, we're also partakers of the divine nature. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Partakers of the divine nature? When I read that, I don't think we, we, we kind of gloss over that. Okay, divine nature, something better, something, oh, you know, it's like, it's something different from us. What is the divine nature? I, this is the way I want to explain it. And this is a very human way. Imagine you had LeBron James's athleticism, though I understand he doesn't have as many rings as other people. Imagine you had Martin Luther King Jr.'s charisma, Winston Churchill's political intrigue, Stephen Hawking's or Albert Einstein's just intelligence, maybe Billy Graham's evangelistic skills, and add a couple other people in there, people you look up to as like, wow, they have really something to it. Package all that together and you have that. What would you do with your life? Right? I'm, I'm sure if you just sat on that and you made a journal, what would you do? Ooh, I would do this. Ooh, I would do that. Ooh. All these things would all of a sudden become possibilities to you. Yet when we think about the divine nature of God, we are incredibly unimaginative. If we have the best things that humanity has to offer, we can think of all kinds of things. But we've been given a divine nature, something that far exceeds the best of any human quality we could even hope for. And yet, what are we imagining we can do with God's divine power, with his nature in us? What could we be doing with that? seeing with eyes that can help and having the confidence that the Holy Spirit is going to be there to do the work in and through you. That things that are impossible for you as a person with your limitations, your educational background and whatever else is not a constraint on the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we have a power that far exceeds us. And you see, we, we have heroes of faith. And we go to them, we read about them, we have their biographies. We, um, oh Man, what do we do with it though? We're inspired, but we're not moved. What if we were moved? Do you think we can be moved? Could we do the things that rescue people? 
that give our life, all of our possessions away, that others would hear the gospel? Would we have faith like, like George Mueller or Lottie Moon? You see, I, I wanted uh, the passages of Moses and of Peter read because those are two men who before they had the power of the Spirit to do what God had called them to do, they were nothing to look up to. Moses ran for his life, and when God came and came to him in the desert and said, Hey, I want you to come. I want you, you're going to come and get my people. He resisted. And when he said, You have to talk to Pharaoh, he's like, uh, My tongue doesn't work so good. Meanwhile, this is the guy who grew up in the Egyptian court, educated beyond anybody else. He knew the ins and outs of everything. If there was one man called to do this, it was definitely him. And yet, his personal weakness would have kept him from it. And yet, it's not Moses who comes. It's I am who is coming and speaking. And Peter and Paul, as apostles, what were they before Christ came to them? Peter himself was a denier, quick to talk, really slow to understand. He cut off a dude's ear real quick. I mean, Peter was not the man that you would think understands the power of God. And yet, Peter was the one who eventually, at the end of this, it's, it's, it's believed that Peter's writing this from prison facing martyrdom. It wasn't from his own heart that he had that power. It was from the inworking of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, pers- persecuting Christians... You see, the divine nature is something very different than our own. And I think we forget that. But you see, this divine nature that we can be sure of, we have it because of the promises of God. You see, the promises of God, what does it say here? By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine knowledge. What are the promises of God that we have? We have the promise of rest. Come to me, all those who are heavy laden, and weary, I will give you rest. Matthew 11. Presence. We have the presence of God. Not like Christmas presents. Sorry, boys and girls. We already got Jesus as the best present. We have the presence of God with us, living in and with and among us. Matthew 28. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That any of those who go out and speak God's truth and His glory and His gospel, God is with you. We have the promise of fellowship. That God welcomes all those what does he say in Revelation 3.20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. We have the promise of abundant life from John 10.10. 10. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. We have the promise that the Holy Spirit will dwell within us. From We see that from Acts 2 and Pentecost and onward. We see that we have the provision for anything we need. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We have the promise of victory over temptation. The Hebrews 2 and 18 where it talks about how Christ faced every temptation, was like us in every way, yet was without sin. And that is the God who is with us. That we can have victory over temptation. And we have the promise that He will return. John 14, 1 through 6. As I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. We have all of these promises. What else is there? 
before that, it says, by His divine power, He has given you all things for life and godliness. All things. What kind of things is all things? All things is the ability to resolve conflict when you couldn't before, when you might be the person starting conflict. All things is the ability to have faith when you see no way forward and it looks like God is not even there in your life. All things is being able to comfort others when you had no room in your heart to care, to stop, to listen. All things is being able to give advice that is sound, that is truth, when before you didn't know the truth yourself. All things is obeying God with joy instead of obeying out of anger or fear. All things is being able to forgive someone who sinned against you so deeply, all your friends are saying, just leave that person behind. All things for life and godliness. You see, God is being presented to us, the knowledge of God is being presented to us here as the single power by which we gain all of the benefits that God gives to us. And yet sometimes we try and tap into other power sources. And yet we still want the same benefit that only the knowledge of God gives us. What am I saying? That sometimes we want that only God can give, but we don't want to get it the way God gives it to us. We want to get it our own way. And so we want to place our confidence not in God's word, but in something in ourselves in our own ability, in our own bank account, in our own educational background, in our own portfolio, our own relationship status, our own career prospects, our own family. But these things end up betraying us because they can't deliver on what we ask them to because the world has been brought to corruption. And so what we, what we need is to go back to the knowledge of God. Because it gives a power that only the knowledge of God can. And see, here's the other thing. is If we try and get glory from God, if we try and get the power of His presence, if we try and get all of the results of His promises and the, the emotional and spiritual uh, benefit that those give us, and if we try and get um, a, an assurance that we are, are not overcome by sin, but we don't reach to the Word of God, and try and grow in the knowledge of God in it, we're going to become immobilized in our faith in what we do. Because we're going to start to associate God's lack of answering and God's lack of progress in my life with God's power and ability, when in reality, it all stems from the fact that we're trying to get what God gives without letting, without really getting God himself. And that's a tragedy. So what is the true knowledge of God? Let me touch real quick, by the way, on a, a glory and excellence. The glory and excellence that we get from God. That's both now and eternal. Eternal in that we get the glory that God gives in heaven with a new body, renewed. A glory that is joy, unceasing joy. It's unceasing happiness. It's unceasing wealth, but it of a different wealth than we think of. And it's un, 
it is an unmeasurable fulfillment of all of life that God gives to us. And He gives it to us through the knowledge of Him, a true knowledge of Him. But the true knowledge of God is the true knowledge of the gospel. Because we do not understand God or who He is unless we understand the gospel. If you go to U of A, if you go to Starbucks, Walmart, wherever you want to go, wherever you go in your normal, you stop at the gas station, and you ask people, who is God? You'll probably get some legit, solid answers. You're probably going to get a lot of weird stuff. Whereas one of the high schoolers I hung out with last week, foo-foo. He used that word foo-foo for everything. It's just weird. Anyway, doesn't make sense to you, doesn't make sense to me, but he called it. It's foo-foo. What are we going to hear? You see, we're not, someone can't give you the uh, honest and truthful information about who God is unless they know Jesus Christ himself. The reason that is is because God makes himself most clearly known in Jesus Christ. Is God holy? We see that in Jesus Christ. Because God was so holy that he could not be with or among us unless one came down to make us right and able to be in his presence. Is God merciful and gracious? Yes, he is. How do we see that? Because Jesus willingly offered himself to come and to make his life a sacrifice that we could be with him. And that God, on the first place, had a disposition of desiring that we would be with him, and the Son willingly went. Is God holy? Or I'm sorry, is God powerful? Yes, he is, because he's the only one who can defeat death, the thing that brings all of us to nothing, that gives us no hope. And God defeats that death. Is God just? Yes. Because we see a sacrifice had to be sent, and yet he makes himself the sacrifice in his son. And is God good and wise? Yes. Because Jesus came kept all the word, all the, the laws of God perfectly and offered himself because he knew that if he tried to place that burden upon us, we would be crushed instantly. You see, God is only known. A true knowledge of God only comes in the gospel and knowing who Jesus is. So if we have that, if we have that, a true knowledge, this is what God has done for us, why do we seek glory in things in this world instead of the glory that God offers us. Because there's two visions for glory right now. There's glory in living out the gospel and that becoming more and more true and the knowledge of God growing in your life. And then there's the glory we seek and everything that is here that is going to corruption. You see, glory, our, our culture sells it to us. It, watch any commercial. They make everything look as amazing as they can. And then when you get the real deal, it doesn't look as good, right? They're selling you glory. Glory is built into the houses we live in. It rolls around with us in the RV campers that people have and in the cars we drive on the road. It's woven into the fashion and the clothes that we wear. Glory, it's added to the ingredients of our food and our drink. It's embedded into our achievements. It's found even between our closest relationships because we're seeking Glory, that which makes us most fulfilled and most joyful and most happy. And the things that are created rather than the one who creates them all. You see, the excellence of the glory 
that God gives makes everything else look like a counterfeit. See, the gospel, this is what's interesting. The gospel frees us from seeking glory apart from God. And the gospel frees us from needing satisfaction apart from the Savior. Because we're all seeking glory and we're all seeking satisfaction. But where are we seeking it? It's only in the gospel that we're free to seek it in the only place where we can find it. So we talked about, we talked about the knowledge of God and its provision. What, what I just described is everything we get in the gospel right now. If you believe and have a true knowledge of God, that is true of you now. But where does that go? Now we're going to talk about its progression. You see, faith cannot be stagnant. Faith cannot be in one place like the guy on the train that I described, right? You get on the train, but you sit in your seat and you don't move. You look at your iPhone until you get off. That is not the Christian life. So oftentimes we want it, but if that's our desire, that's a desire out of sin. You see, a genuine faith looks like this. There's a progression. It's virtue, or you might call that goodness. It's knowledge. It's self-control. It's steadfastness. It's godliness, brotherly, uh, brotherly affection, and love. You see, there's a journey of someone endeavoring to know God more and more. And before, before we, before we understand that, that there's this journey, we're not going to start to see the effects of the gospel. The things I said were true. We're not going to see them manifest themselves in a way in which we experience it. What do I mean? If we're partakers of the divine nature, there's going to be things that we do and say and experience that are completely different than if we are not walking in step with God. And when we, the more we see those things... That should be like fuel in the tank to energize us more, to want to see that happen, to see more of that, to see that in others. And we see it spread. That is how revival happens. That is how communities completely transform. That is how church buildings fill up and church plants happen. And, and people across the world are hungering after the gospel. You know, I just heard Pastor Philip is, is going to be preaching to a group of people in Pakistan, Muslims in Pakistan find this area where apparently they have enough Wi-Fi where they're all going to cram into a building and they're going to Skype a sermon to them live. It's going to be April, or no, sorry, it's going to be July 3 in the morning, 7 a.m. So if you remember that, keep that in prayer. Think of that. That entire groups of people are coming together in a room just to hear the gospel preached to them. That is walking in step with the gospel. That is the power of the knowledge of God. That's at work in people's lives when they don't even know who God is, but they know they want something more than what they have. You see, I saw this this funny picture on the Internet. It said it must have been in a foreign country that doesn't speak English, but it had this display of all these watches, and underneath it it says, Genuine Fake Watches. And it's just like, hey, this is great, you know. I'm going to get a real fake Rolex, you know. You know, it's comical, but I wonder how many people, how many churches really could be described as genuine fakes. 
as that our faith is a genuine fake faith. You know, I read this, I read this report. It was done, uh, was, it was reported on the Gospel Coalition website, but it was looking at the data from the Pew Research. And what they found is that in Europe, still 60 plus percent of people in most European countries identify themselves as Christians. They'll say, are you a Christian? Walking down the street, yes, I am a Christian. And then they, they probe and they add, ask a couple more questions just to see at the most, most base, most basic level, does that profession of saying, I am a Christian, match up to what a Christian is? Which means, do they have a biblical definition of God? And do they attend church at least once a month? And there's one other qualification that's, that's I'm, I'm blanking on. But when they put it through that data, which again, most base level, being the most generous as you could be, 9 to 16% of those who professed come out the other end that way. That means we know Europe is filled with genuine fake Christians. The, thing, the reality is, is we know that's the same in this country. It's not really that different. And so, I want to ask this question. Who are we? If we put that upon ourselves, are we genuine fake Christians or are we the ones who could say, this is what Peter's describing and I'm seeing some of this in my life. It's sloppy. It's not pretty. I'm not a a, a picture-perfect version of it. But I can say there's some of this to me. You know, when I... When I, I grew up in the Reformed tradition, I know some people discover Reformed theology later and then enter into it. I grew up with it. And what I grew up with, and this is just my experience, this isn't everybody's, is that I thought knowing the right things equated being the right person before God. I created good theology with good Christian. And so this is what I thought. Let me give you a picture of this. And this just probably tells you more about my personality too. Being a good Christian means getting in the lazy boy, putting your feet up, and you read the right things, you know the right things, but you don't get out and do other things. That's for Baptists to do. That's for the Methodists to do. Right? But where does that come back to us? I think sometimes we operate kind of like that trained theology when we're not meaning to and not intending to. And Peter writes this to Christians like us to say, you of anybody know the benefits in the gospel, the magnitude of God's sovereignty and his election in your life, and that you have no reason to ever sit back and think that God is never going to be five steps ahead of me by the time I'm going to be doing some work. And yet we're the ones who are sitting back, timid about going out into the world and sharing the gospel, timid about opening our houses up to those who are neighbors who need someone around them that you just show the love of Christ over a meal and then when they wonder why you even opened your home to them, there's an opportunity for you to share the gospel with them. That the needs in our community aren't someone else's deal, but they might be an opportunity that God has given us to share the word. And so what are these qualities? I'm going to run through them real quick. Faith is foundational. We must believe. And upon that, virtue and goodness. This isn't exclusive to Christians. We have unbelieving neighbors and coworkers we might refer to as good people. They're virtuous. And it's not saying that 
only Christians are good people, but it's saying that if you are a Christian of faith, you should be in that category. What does someone say of you? Do they call you a loudmouth, a political nut, a clean freak? Do they call you a good person? A good person. I don't think people will call that about, say that about me, but I wish they would. I wish that was true of me. Built upon that is knowledge, and this isn't the, the, the intellectual, uh, you know, pie in the sky knowledge. This is a, 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 a real life experience knowledge. Right? The knowledge of riding a bike. You could read a book about riding a bike. You could go on YouTube and watch a video about riding a bike. But when you ride a bike and actually do it, that's a different sort of knowledge. That's the sort of knowledge that he's talking about here. A knowledge of, of knowing and doing. And knowing and doing with others. And then self-control. That the way our tongue would fly off the handle or we might not be able to control behaviors within our life. That those things start to become under control. That they don't have mastery over us. That doesn't mean they're fleed from us and they're completely gone. There's a perseverance and a steadfastness that we would continue on to the goal despite opposition. There's Philadelphia, a brotherly affection that within our own community we would love one another, surround ourselves by those who are in need and not run away or say, oh, that problem's going on in their house. Something else must be going on. Because I know how that goes. And then there's a love for the outsider. A love for those who do not know the gospel and wanting to share it with them. You know, ultimately, this progression isn't just a personal journey of individual benefit. It's our journey onward to embody the beauty and the hope and the transformation of the gospel in our life and to welcome others to the same true knowledge of God that we have. You see, living out faith that progresses in life, it produces fruit. It produces fruit. And I just think, how terrible would it be if we lived our whole life without producing fruit? How depressing it would be to not see fruit. And it is. Maybe that's a grace of God if that's how you feel right now that you would be depressed about your Christian walk, that you would seek the knowledge of Him, that it's not based on your performance, it's not based on all these things, but there are markers that God will begin to show the evidence of His work as we seek a deeper and more full knowledge of Him. And you can't seek a knowledge of Him without without pursuing goodness, uh, 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 a a real-life experience knowledge, self-control, brotherly affection and love. You can't know Him without those things. You see, our life will be changed. This is what's interesting. That as we know God more, those things become easy because God changes us to be more like His Son. Everything described there is becoming more Christ-like. You've probably heard that before. If you're going to become more like Christ, who is the one making you more like Christ? It is Christ. It is God with the indwelling of His Holy Spirit in you that you would become more like Him. And the more we desire Him, we'll also desire the things the Son desires. And what does the Son desire above all else? He desires that those who are have the name written in the book of life would be joined to Him, that they would know Him, that they would walk in obedience and joy in this life now, and that they would be with Him in heaven forever. If you were given the opportunity to be a part of welcoming those that God has welcomed to himself, 
would you pass it up? You see, as the Son works His life in you, that desire grows within you that you want the things God wants. And you might say, I know this, that's what God wants me to do, but uh, frankly, telling people about Jesus scares me. Well, you're not the only one. Telling people about Jesus in a culture that is post-Christian is not easy. Telling people about the hope they can have in a God who created the whole world is hard in a world of cynicism and a world that thinks we are nothing but the things we touch and observe. It's not easy. But you aren't there telling people about Jesus in this, in how they describe the world. It's not just us. The Holy Spirit, remember the promises of God. That God is going to be present with you. That He's going to be able to give you rest even at the moment of your anxiety as you can speak with somebody. And the only way to understand this is to look at the power of the knowledge of God. And that's our last point here. We have the true words, the only true words of the knowledge of God in the world. We have them. They're written in this book. Maybe we have them up on artwork in our homes. Maybe we have it memorized in our heads. What do we do with that true knowledge? I'll tell you this. That true knowledge has the power to do things that you wouldn't in any of your other words. I tell my kids to stop doing something. They don't always listen. I tell them to remember this. They don't always listen. I, so many things I can say. People aren't going to hear. It's like, oh yeah, he's talking again. We've, he talks a lot. God's words are not that way. When God speaks and his Holy Spirit is present in the person he's speaking to, they do not come back void or null. They're effective. And that gives us, I think, huge assurance. Because we need to remember we are a messenger of a God who is speaking. We are not the one who is speaking. Because the Lord will speak through us as his mouthpieces. And what does he say? His divine power has granted us all things for life and godliness. Life is not right... It's the new life. We hear that word and we think, okay, what's all the things on my wish list? My Amazon wish list, I got them all now. No, it's new life. It's life in God. It's life as someone who's been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, as a sinner set free, as someone made a servant and disciple of God. And godliness is what I described earlier. It's Christ-likeness. It's pursuing a life that models more like Christ tomorrow and today than it did yesterday. If God has given you all things, what are you going to do with it? My family and I were trying to collect camping gear together. We have about half of what we need, and I I need a hatchet. I keep telling my wife, I need a hatchet. I'm not going camping until I have a hatchet. What are we going to do when we get all the camping things? We're going to go camping. When we have all the stuff to go camping, we'll go camping. In the Christian life, What are we going to do when we have all things that we need for a new life in Christ and godliness? We're going to go do it. And that's the promise we already have, and that's the truth we already have, that God has given us by His divine power all things. There is nothing that we are without. 
There is nothing that you pull up the inventory and say, sorry, God, I'm missing this right now. There is nothing we're missing. We have everything we need. And in verse, in verse uh, one, where it says that we have to those, he writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of equal standing. That is powerful. That means the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and Moses and anyone else in the Bible who's done something great, they don't have anything that you don't have. There is nothing that they have that you are without, that God has withheld from you. And that also means that there is nothing keeping you from being able to have the same gospel powerful story in your life except for your unwillingness to go ahead. But God changes that heart. By the power of the gospel, God comes to those who say, I want to worship God. I want to follow God. I want to do the things of God, but I can't. I am scared. I'm immobilized. I've sought glory in this world in ways I shouldn't have. I really care more about cars and collections of things and nice things and the stuff I can put on Instagram and all of that stuff, maybe that's your life. I don't know. But the reality is the gospel still has hope for you if that is your life because God died for people who he knew would serve him with just a really poor track record. He knew that. And he died for you. He died for your failed righteousness that you could be his servant that he would make himself more glorified and more glorious, that we would share in his glory because he would work all through us instead of in spite of us. Because we don't achieve God's glory, he gives it to us. And he works through us that it would become more known. What does this look like in our life? If we have this power, what could we be doing? I thought this was alarming. Estimates say that 40% of young people in church today will not be in church when they grow up. 40%. Now, some of us might say, well, you know, that's just our culture. Nothing you can do about it. But the gospel hasn't gotten weak. The gospel hasn't changed. Our God hasn't changed. What has changed, ultimately, that matters. Nothing of the promises of God have changed. And so this is what I want to challenge ourselves with. In the face of the fact that That's already a trend happening. It's not as if it's like 10% now and they're guessing it's going to be 40. It's already that way and it's going to continue that way. What can we do as a church, as Christians who have the power of God with the words and the lives we live to see change happen in the lives of those around us? We can build a more authentic relationship with the young people in our community already right now. If we're a parent, that means... We can deepen our relationship with our kids. That means we need to be honest about our struggles and our faith, share about how we seek the Lord in these things, and also surround others within our community around us. You see, it takes more than one or two parents to raise young people in the faith. Because I was a young person, this is how young people think. Mom and dad say that. Eh, all right. But you see another young person who's like, Younger than your parent, but older than you? All right, if they do it, I'll I'll believe it then. It's a reality. Don't ask me why God made us that way. It's part of the fall, I guess. But that's the way it works. 
That means there are multiple influences. It doesn't matter what age you are. You can influence someone in this room with the gospel. And you have the power to. It's, you don't need some card in your pocket. You don't need an ordination to do it. All you need is the God who gives you all of himself. Where does that take us? You see, a life lived like this gives us the assurance of our salvation. Make your calling and election sure. We've probably heard that over and over again. Weird phrase, but what does that mean? That means all the things that are true of you become manifest in a life that is lived out as if they were true because they are true. And what you're going to get from that is an assurance that they are true. But that assurance is not selfish. That assurance is not for yourself to simply feel good. That assurance is to give you the freedom to do what God has called you to do in increasingly more measure. And we can do that. God gives that to us. You see, in Jesus, we have everything we need for a life, new life in him and in godliness. He's given us his divine power. I pray that this week we would ponder these things, that we would, but we would not be stuck there. That we would put these into application. Make a phone call. Go out for coffee. Have a conversation about it. Discuss about how, you know, frankly, I've, I felt like I'm not doing this and I don't know if I can ever do that well. Well, don't keep that to yourself. We have a community of believers here, which is a tremendous wealth. You can talk about this openly. That no one's going to seize you and drag you out of your home here. Bank upon that freedom and bank upon the freedom that God gives you the ability to work for him with the power he gives. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, how easy it is for us to see the Christian life as a series of things we, we cram into our head and, and then just kind of go forward without much thought. Lord, I pray that you would, you would work a hungering within us to, to seek you in a more way, that to know you more truly and more deeply, that Lord, it will manifest in life. Lord, I pray that would become true. I, Lord, I pray that would be true of myself. Lord, I pray that would be true of Desert Springs Presbyterian as well here in Tucson. Lord, grant us these things. Forgive us for our failed record. And Lord, grant us the willingness to come to you with open hands to know you more and more. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.